We are ready. I believe so. I, I think we have to clarify some things from last week, our discussion on the Ferrari. Um, I apologize because I implied that I could possibly change brake fluid. And let's be realistic. I have no idea what brake fluid is or, or how to do that. Um, at, at the same time, I think Fred wanted to amend his answer of the engines running off of either olive oil or red wine, and it's actually tomato sauce. Let's start the show. <laughs> You're listening to the Center for Those Auto Safety can be a Podcast problem. with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. All right. So this week we're going to get into, uh, is, is your car a car or is it just a collection of computers um, that's just held together by software not written by the car manufacturer, but written by a hundred different you know suppliers and what this means for vehicle safety? Um, I, you know, from the research that Michael sent around to us and looking at this stuff, it's, it's fascinating that it seems that cars contain like over a hundred little computers, these electrical electronic control units that control everything from your windows to your AC to, you know, the automatic, uh, emergency braking. And for example, we'll take Ford, just randomly choosing one. They don't write the software. Somebody else does that. The head of Volkswagen said, yeah, we write maybe 10% of the software. 90% is written by somebody else. And it's not just one somebody else. It's dozens of somebody else's. Um, so let's get into the safety implications. Let's try that again. Let's get into the safety implications. Ah, English. Oh, you know, I've been at the center since 2000. And, you know, when... I we when I first got at the center we were looking at a lot of mechanical defects and you know that's that was a big focus of ours but um since then we've seen you know back then a software recall there were very few um computers in vehicles first of all I mean there was an there might have been an engine control unit in some um but the airbag occupant protection systems maybe had some at that point but now you know like you mentioned there are 100 150 distinct uh control units in vehicles uh many of which are created by different suppliers operating on different types of software that wasn't created by the manufacturer um so there is you know essentially that the 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 field of software has exploded in 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 uh vehicles and a lot of manufacturers are struggling to keep up some manufacturers do a better job than others um and you know there's a lot of issues that it raises in regards to safety particularly for us um how the software interacts with the vehicle's safety performance systems um to avoid crashes um, or, uh, you know, any number of things, you know, to alert authorities after a crash. Um, there's just so many different systems in your car that are now running off software. Um, it's a it's a, a true, a true change in the industry that's that's taking place right before our eyes. Yeah, so we see that there's these uh, what you call free calls where there's a problem with the system and the auto manufacturer just says, hey, instead of 
recalling it and updating, you know, NHTSA with some sort of information, they just send out some secret software update to this. Well, it's it's not a secret software update. It is the repair that's um, been required for the recall. So essentially, here what we what we see um, in the safety area, and one of our concerns is, you know, what I what I started calling a free call because it cuts down dramatically on the expense that a manufacturer is going to have to put into a recall repair. Traditionally, if you had a mechanical defect, you had to fix that mechanical defect. Now we're seeing manufacturers that there is a mechanical defect, but that mechanical defect can be prevented from showing up or you know, the, the driver can be provided a warning to pull the car over in some cases before the actual defect arrives. So while they're reducing the risk, um, they're not really fixing your car under the recall, which is a really problematic area for owners um, who expect, you know, when there's a safety defect on their car, that it that it be fixed and not just somewhat mitigated, as we're seeing with some of these recalls. But the fact is, those recalls are conducted like that, save manufacturers a lot of money, um, and they can get them out a little quicker because they're not manufacturing new parts or designing new parts. Like, What's a, a case of this happening? Like, what What's an example of where they're like, hey, here's something damaging your car, but we can write a little code to over to get around that. that. There's been a couple in the in the last few years. Um, there's probably a dozen more that I don't know off the top of my head. But the, the one that we were focused on because it was part of a petition that we did on fires in Kia and Hyundai vehicles, um, we basically they put their fix was a knock sensor that um, – puts the car into a limp home mode. Functionally, it puts you into, it doesn't allow you to use the engine at um, rates that possibly would damage the engine further. Does it give um, you a message, uh, <laughs> drive this slowly to your dealership? Function, yeah, yes. And, you know, limp home mode is something that has been used in other recalls in the past. We don't, we're not sure. It's not great, but, you know, if it prevents the defect from occurring, i.e., in this case, engine failure, and a fire, um, then it's worth it. I mean, it mitigates that risk. However, the underlying problem here was that the the Theta two engines that Hyundai was manufacturing um, were def they were they're not working as they should. They're failing at very high rates, and some of those failures involve this engine fire. So, the knock sensor recall mitigated the defect which was the risk of fire but it did nothing to address the underlying problem which is the poor engine quality and how how is the consumer do i even know this software update happened i mean like with my with my computer here i'll get like a notice hey new software is available but they don't even tell you about the stuff they update in the background like, well in that one you go into your dealer and you're you're basically dependent on either your dealer letting you know what the content of the software update is <laughs> or um, possibly alerted through your manufacturer. I mean, there are, you know, depending on the manufacturer, there are a lot of different types of transparency here. I mean, you'll see updates. You know, I, I believe Tesla provides a log file of its updates to folks, to its owners who want to see that. Some other manufacturers are probably doing that, but that's rare. Um, there are, a, you know, when you go into a dealer, we've even seen some recalls where, you know, not recalls, but they're basically service programs that call for 
these repairs to be made or this software to be changed the next time a person comes in and visits. Um, we're not sure if those are being done under the table. It's hard to tell. Every Everyone's a little different. Um, but in the cases where it's public, like in Hyundai and Kia, where there's a recall um, repair that's posing as some sort of fix, when in actuality, it's just mitigating the risk in some ways, that's, that's where the consumer headache comes in. <clears throat> well, at this point, I, I'm sure the listeners are dying to hear about regression testing. Um, right, right. So absolutely, everybody should know about regression testing. So, what happens when you update software in a responsible environment? Um, you take the new software and you put it in the computer, and then you run a simulation or a test that looks at every possible situation the computer could encounter or the vehicle could encounter to make sure that that update that you want to install is safe in all the existing situations. Um, so this is more or less impossible to do in a car because number one, no dealer, no manufacturer, no person can anticipate every safety critical situation the car is going to encounter. Um, number two, even if they could, it would take a lifetime to do all the regression testing because if you think of it, if you've got over a hundred computers operating in your car, they all have to operate correctly. And in order for any of them to operate correctly, they have to be, number one, connected to the other one. Number two, they have to understand the communication protocol that the other computers are using. And number three, they have to make sure that they're not sending a message at the same time as some other computer because then the messages could crash and get confused, right? So. There's, there's a lot that's got to happen in order to do regression testing successfully. There are no federal standards. There are no accepted standards for the amount of regression testing that is required before you can take software and put it into a car such that it will be acceptable in managing safety critical functions in the car after the update. So even if you have taken the update and you put it in the car, even if the dealer has done that, you still have no way of knowing how much testing has been done for that update. And in fact, Michael, I think you can talk about some examples where updates have occurred that have induced additional problems in the car. You're muted. Need yourself. We've seen a, you know, recently we saw in uh tesla vehicles they were receiving complaints of phantom braking um and then there was a recall uh that was performed and it involved an over-the-air update that supposedly corrected the phantom braking problem but it spiked after that period and that's under investigation by nitsa right now to try to figure out what happened but it appears i mean at least from the outside that the initial update may have caused an even bigger problem um because it was released rather quickly and it probably didn't go through all of the testing protocols that are necessary to ensure that it functions safely um so we're still waiting to see what happened there um but there have been a couple of other situations we've seen where you know software updates have brought vehicles that were in compliance with federal standards when they were built out of compliance um and that's an issue uh but you know if 
right now there are very few manufacturers who are actually sending out over-the-air updates. Tesla is doing a lot, but there's a couple other manufacturers who are starting to get into that um, area. And, you know, we think, you know, that the over-the-air updates have, you know, there's a lot of promise there. I mean, getting recalls fixed, 100% completion rates, which is something that we've struggled with for years, um, getting consumers and um, the government and other people who own vehicles to actually repair their recalls is a challenge. And you're looking at rates between 50 to 70% of actually people who are getting these fixes done in these recalls. So that leaves a lot of defective cars out on the road that can cause tragedies. So it's great, um, at least in the area of things that can be fixed by software, um, that, that over-the-air updates are something that's coming. Um, but at the same time, and as we've seen in the past, they raise a lot of questions about at what point does an over-the-air update cross the line from a quality or maintenance type fix to something that implicates safety? Um, one of the first times this was raised for us was around 2013 when there were some Teslas that appeared to be having battery fires because of debris that was kicked up from the road. Um, and in response to that, Tesla decided to send out an over-the-air update that raised the height of the vehicles. I don't remember what the distance was, maybe two inches, um, to prevent that from occurring. And that was performed, and it it what NHTSA had an investigation open, closed the investigation in response to that, even though there was never a formal recall issued. So that kind of got our attention and made us say, you know, wait, there's a defect to motor vehicle safety here that's been corrected. Why isn't there a notice being provided to owners of what's going on? Um, so ever since then, uh, we've had our eye on recalls like that and things that aren't recalls, but should be recalls and are often introduced under the guise of a safety campaign or otherwise. Um, Tesla's continued to play a little fast and loose with that process, um, but the current that's seems to be interested in, in kind of clamping down and making sure that consumers have more information on what's going on inside their vehicle while they sleep at night. Well, just, okay. just want to clarify a couple of things. Michael talked about phantom braking, and just to refresh everybody's memory, phantom braking is when a vehicle stops for no apparent reason suddenly. Uh, as it's driving down the road because of defective interpretation of whatever stimuli it's receiving. For example, if it sees stripes on the road, it might think that that's the reason to stop. And so it'll just jam on the brakes and put in danger the car and whoever is following the car who sees no reason to anticipate the braking, but there it goes. Uh, the other thing Michael talked about is NHTSA, which is National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. One of our favorite acronyms, but might not be as familiar to our listeners. And it's traffic. <laughs> traffic. There you go. Episode two, you can learn what NHTSA and a whole bunch of other acronyms stand for. So uh, when w the government crash tests vehicles, you get a vehicle and they'll run it into walls and check that safety and whatnot. I already know the answer to this question, but why doesn't the government have access to all of the software running here so they can do some sort of testing on it and say, hey, base level, the, these systems actually talk to each other correctly? 
the manufacturers aren't, you know, the, the, all, all of the software is proprietary. I mean, it's we can't get our hands on it and test it. I don't know that the government can either. And, and even then, you're talking about, um, you know, you're talking about software that is created by various suppliers inside of one car. Um, that would be asking, that would probably be asking NHTSA to do a lot more than it's capable of. And, and you know, frankly, the manufacturers are responsible for certifying the safety of these vehicles. If NHTSA could set performance standards or, or standards for software testing um, before it could be released, you know, something that doesn't put an unnecessary burden on getting quick fixes out, but also ensures that the repair is, you know, first of all, the repair is for something that should be repaired by software, but also that the repair is going to function in safety critical situations and not create further problems down the road. Um, that would be something we'd like to see in a standard, you know, as usual, it's one of those areas where, you know, and this one's, you know, like I've said, it's, it's kind of a revolution in autos. It's new, it's happening before our eyes. So, um, it would be a lot to ask to have NHTSA to go into every one of these systems and figure it out. But it, I don't think it would be that much to ask, to ask the agency to set some basic and minimum performance standards around, um, both the software and the process of updating so that we have a clear, more transparent system. And we're, you know, somewhat more assured that what's going into our cars isn't going to make us less safe. But you got to figure, okay, the, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Ford or Toyota or whoever, and I've got these hundred different systems written by, you know, a variety of companies. All the manufacturers are using the same, you know, dozen two dozen companies for all of these parts it's not like there's a hundred thousand companies writing this software so it's a limited set of companies and and software they'd be getting access to is that correct or or is it really completely the wild west where there's I, a I think it's the wild west um i think there's a lot of you're that that's scary um there's a lot of companies that are doing different things. I mean, right now we're seeing so many different tech and software companies try to get into the autonomous uh, vehicle game. And, you know, a lot, I think, you know, we're getting, you know, if we're going from a period in the early 2000s where, you know, the only 5% of, you know, the, so, you know, 5% of software market or 5% of the vehicles had this type of software you had to worry about. Now we're looking at, you know, every vehicle on the road is coming out with, you know, millions of lines of code and different computers. And it's it really what, you know, and really what the government's job to do there is not to specify how they're going to get this done. Um, because in that case, I don't know that we'd ever get there. We need the innovation and we need that to happen outside of the government, but there can be minimum performance standards set just to make sure that sure that there, we aren't truly in the wild west, even though we are. <laughs> now, Fred, I got to imagine that um, this is not like something brand, 100% brand new, maybe for the automotive industry, but I mean, in terms of government regulation, I'm going to make the naive assumption where I'm probably wrong that the FAA has to do this for airplanes to get some sort of safety test on those things. Is that correct? Yes. Um, 
And this brings up one of the key differences within the Department of Transportation between how airplanes are handled and how vehicles are handled. When an airplane um, is built and it's proposed for entry into commercial service, they apply for what's called a type certificate. <clears throat> In order to get a type certificate, they have to go through a an extensive series of tests, qualifications, um, everything is prescribed and there is intensive review of all of the engineering results before the airplane is, receives this type certificate, which allows it to enter commercial service. Um, if you followed the recent discussions about the Boeing 737 MAX 8 aircraft, <clears throat> there was a lot of discussion, some people thought it was kind of inside baseball, about how th this certification takes place. <clears throat> Without getting into that, the, the fact is that there is a type certificate for an aircraft before it's allowed to go into commercial service that is approved by the FAA. There's nothing like that in automobiles. Automobiles um, are self-certified by the manufacturer to comply with existing federal motor vehicle safety standards. Those are the laws that regulate what a, a vehicle has to do. The problem is that there are no FMVSS, Motor Vehicle Safety Standards, that apply to this kind of activity. The software that goes into the car, the regression testing, the amount of margin that it has to have for performance, um, all of the kind of things that you would expect in a commercial aircraft or a, a military program that relies on software is completely absent from cars. This you know, There are historical reasons for this. You know, the horseless carriage came out and there was no need, <clears throat> there was no need to discuss the software component of a Model T because it didn't have any. But it set a precedent for motor vehicles and how they were introduced into commerce that really still, uh, in a sense, binds the approach of the agency today. Okay, so there's no third party, independent party that does any of this auditing of any of this software. So these manufacturers can, because I've worked in software industry for over 25 years at this point, and I know that there's a lot of stuff that is never tested properly. There's stuff that people just, hey, I'm going to download this package from the internet. It's open source, which means that I can view the code. A lot of stuff no one ever does, and they build entire companies on that and then 20 years later realized oh there's a giant flaw in this system because no one ever actually looked in it i can i mean if do we know i'm like is the auto industry doing the same silly things where they're just kind of hey here's a package on the internet that says it does this so i'm gonna use it well let's be charitable and say they're learning okay um but, you know, we all remember the blue screen of death, which was characteristic of our favorite computers back in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s. Sometimes today. Almost many decades, right? And so you're typing along and get the blue screen of death. You curse. You have to go back and reconstruct what you were doing. You rewrite the, the document, whatever it was. And it's probably better for having been edited, <laughs> uh, on, however unexpectedly. The problem is you're not driving off a cliff because the software failed, okay? And, and the standards that apply for software, the standards that apply for so much of the software activity that you know is current in 
all of the development areas are simply inappropriate for vehicles that can kill you if the software makes a mistake. So uh, there, if there hasn't already been some sort of lawsuit where somebody's managed to get access to the software code of some system saying, hey, your software failed, it caused a death, we need access to audit it. I mean, I imagine that's, if it hasn't happened, it's going to happen. I mean, it happened with the software behind breathalyzers um, where it's like, hey, it turns out your software is wrong. I'm not drunk. I'm just a little tipsy. Um, I, no, I, I imagine like Tesla or, you know, uh, Volvo or Volkswagen or someone's going to get hit where they have to reveal their software. You know, currently all all the Tesla cases are under in trial. So they're, they're, uh, none, of, none of the autopilot cases, at least, and the ones that might involve those issues have, have um, been heard yet. So um, I guess we'll see. But, you know, to, to give you some idea of the, the attitude of the automobile companies, <clears throat> excuse me, Massachusetts passed by referendum a right to repair law <clears throat> a couple of years ago. Um, it's not been implemented because part of the right to repair law asked for, required that the automobile companies provide their software that's needed to repair the vehicles in a format that is usable. You know, it's open, open platforms, open standards, things that can be downloaded into a repair shop and could be used to uh, fix the cars. That's still in the courts. And the uh, Alliance for Automotive Innovation uh, apparently doesn't like that particular innovation very much. And they are suing to invalidate the law, saying that, you know, it's proprietary and we don't the unnecessary burden and all the kind of things that they say when they don't want to cooperate with this whole idea of revealing any of their software. Um, that is that's still in the courts. Uh, September 1st is supposed to be a judgment day for them, but, you know, it's been in the courts for two years now and probably will be uh, for as long as it's possible for the Alliance for Auto Innovation to inhibit auto innovation. As a consumer, do do I actually own my car? I mean, if if the manufacturer is you know managing to just secretly just update software on it without, and I have no ability to stop it or request it, like what's happening here? Well, I mean, I, I think the best answer to that is it varies from car to car, and you definitely need to read what you're signing when you're entering that. I mean, there's certainly some questions about, you know, there's some cars where it doesn't appear you bought you, you bought the right to uh, use your remote ignition or to heated seats anymore because those are going to be subscriptions. So there's oh, you know, there's there's been a question for quite some time now, you know even with the things we talked about last week with the EDR and black box data, like who owns that, you know, you've purchased the car. Um, is that car yours? And it's something that's, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's gone on and, and, and this has been played out a lot more in the area of farm equipment and, and maybe even before in, in, in seeds and in other areas, there's just, you know, there's a, um, it seems like there's an effort by certain manufacturers to control everything that comes out of their developments to the point that, you know, now most of the money that's coming their way for cars 
is a direct result of how much awesome software they're putting in them. Uh, a lot of the high-end cars are really succeeding because they're putting a lot of fancy creature comforts in there and that's attracting buyers. Um, so, you know, this isn't a problem that's, that's going away and, and certainly something that needs to be addressed. So, you know, I remember back when, when the electronic control units first came in, one of the things that people would do is they'd replace a chip. It would defeat the, uh, environmental controls and give the car more performance. And like right now, do you can go ahead and modify your car and still keep it under warranty. I'm not saying like defeat, obviously, the environmental controls, but I can replace the side view mirrors with something else. And I'm still under warranty um, because of that. Can I go ahead in there and change my software and still remain under warranty? Or does it depend what software I change? Like if I want, hey, the air conditioner blow really hard. That's totally going to depend on the manufacturer. But I've got to think that any manufacturer who's has evidence that you've been monkeying around the software system has, you know, a fairly, you know, decent basis to say your warranty's voided. I mean, they can't really warrant something that's been modified independently, right? It's that's hard to do. Well, think of, you know, there's a couple of ways to control that mirror, right? One way to control that mirror is to do it the analog way, which is to put in about four wires that, you know, make the mirror go right, left, up, down. Uh, another way is to just send in two wires, one that carries a signal and, uh, you know, one that brings the, the, brings the ground back to the, uh, to the machinery that's in there. And then the mirror would have to have an ECU to interpret the information that's being sent to it um, so that it would then control its own servo motors that would move the mirror up and down. You as the, as the customer will never know. Right, you just got a handle. You switch the handle, the mirror moves. You, what do you know, or what do you care about that? So you you can't give any generalized answer about it because there's so many different ways that even such a simple mechanism as that can be controlled, and so many different options available. Do you really want to go in and, and hack the software for how your mirror is being controlled? Um, that could also be coming from the uh, the main computer with pulse code modulated signal that flows out to it. it. It's just a nightmare. But if it is software controlled, the automotive companies will go hammer and tongs against you to make sure that you don't have the opportunity to find out what's going on. Okay, so we like the idea of over-the-air updates for some safety fixes and whatnot, but... But what's the what's the larger solution here for the the problems where they're trying to get away with? Hey, let's not fix this. Let's do this update. Um, you know, what do we? And and the fact that there's, as Fred pointed out, there's no regression testing, or maybe there's limited regression testing. So, do we all go back to the Model T? No, I mean, I, it basically comes down to you know. A, a, a rulemaking uh, by the Department of Transportation that specifies minimum standards for how you're going to ensure that you don't have defects that arise due to software updates. Um, also, you know, some some standards or some um, standards around or requirements around how you report um, recalls. They, you know, these these are things that haven't been updated in many years. 
And, you know, we're still reliant on first class mail, mail to reach owners because the government hasn't even gotten to the rule that requires manufacturers to use email or ele another electronic communication. So the rules are, are way behind the tech over there. And um, that's one of the things that needs to happen. Um, there also needs to be um, a little more scrutiny of recalls even when they're announced voluntarily by manufacturers who have a fix they you know the, the agency needs to be looking at these recalls to determine hey is what this doing actually going to achieve a fix or is this just you know a temporary fix is it just a warning you know how can we make sure that manufacturers aren't abusing the system to generate free calls and um, not to actually address un the underlying problem in a lot of these vehicles Okay, I think related to that, we have a, a listener mail from last week. We have uh, Irvin Burkholder asked, how well are Teslas engineered for crash safety? All right. Well, I, 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 my take on that was that it was kind of two questions. When you say crash safety, that could mean two things to me. I'll it means can I crash it? The, no. It means the mechanical side and the crash worthiness. How well do Teslas protect um, occupants? And the answer to that is they're they're excellent from what we've seen. I mean, from rating vehicles um, in the car book to reviewing the in cap testing and other um, testing by the insurance companies. I mean, Teslas seem to have superior crash worthiness. Now, when you talk about you know the 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 way that they've engineered their software and crash avoidance features, some of the human factors engineering that has gone on that. We, you know, there, that's an open question there um, as to how well they've performed that work. You know, <clears throat> there's a lot of investigations ongoing into Tesla's tendency to hit emergency vehicles and highway barriers and recently motorcycles that they don't seem to be sensing with their, um, the um, autopilot or the full self-driving systems that have been developed. So I would say that, you know, the, the, the second part of that question, not involving crashworthiness is, is still somewhat up in the air. Right. The conventional crashworthiness tests, they do pretty well, <clears throat> but you know, the, the <laughs> a problem is that it's not completely clear from the statistics that they are as unlikely to get into a crash in a lot of situations as other cars so you know it could be a good news bad news situation yes if you're if you're in a crash you're protected but the bad news would be maybe you're going to get in crashes more often or you know in in ways that you hadn't anticipated but it sounds like it's a feature where they you know crash into emergency response vehicles because like if if i want to crash like i want to crash right into an ambulance because hey the emergency responders are right on the scene they can get me the guys from the fire truck they can put out the fire yeah, yeah but you don't want to hit the actual responders in the ambulance you just want to uh, yeah okay right okay fine i probably don't want to hit anybody <laughs> you know, but that's probably... happened i mean that's happened you know I think it's six or seven times. I can't recall off the top of my head, but there, you know, that was the impetus for the current NHTSA investigation into the Tesla autopilot was that they just seem to continually hit emergency response vehicles with big flashing lights on them, which, you know, should be a red flag to anyone. Yeah, <laughs> so winding their systems or we don't know yet. Well, I mean, that could be it since Tesla's rely on cameras um, over uh, 
other types of detection systems. Um, you know, the motorcycles that we recently saw hit were hit at night, which also raises camera questions. Um, we know that automatic emergency braking technology is not working that great at night across the industry. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Tesla experiencing problems there either. Okay. Well, hey, Irvin, thank you for the great question. But so is any other manufacturer, because Tesla is like reliant strictly on cameras now. They've removed radar. They said, we're never going to do LIDAR. Um, everybody else seems to be like, we're going to do radar. We're right. going to get LIDAR in there. We're going to have all the systems. Is anybody else taking the uh, cavalier approach of Tesla saying, no, cameras only? No, I don't think they should either. Right. All right. Short answer, short answer, Fred. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but you know, I, I don't think that cameras are the future of um, for driverless cars or even for crash avoidance. I, I, you know, unless you know, unless there's some new amazing camera that comes out that can de detect a lot more things than what the current cameras are, are capturing. Um, I just don't think they're the solution. I think that radar and LIDAR and the ability to see through objects and through weather and for further distances um, ahead of the vehicle um, is is the technology that a lot of this, the, the working and safe um, autonomous vehicles will be built on. We kind of circle back to regression testing, right? Because the, the way the industry is headed seems to be <clears throat> multiple sensors and then synthesis of all the inputs from all the different sensors to affect the what's called OEDR or object event um, detection and response. So that's a good thing because you've got more than one sensor input coming in to determine what's going on. And, uh, you know, hopefully it'll reduce the accidents. That's certainly the the belief that the people have and that uh, the developers believe that that is sufficient approach to allow completely automated driving. The problem is that you get back to regression testing, right? It's a very, very complex system. You've got lots of inputs from lots of different directions. If you make an update to the software, how can you be sure that that very complex system with all of those different inputs coming in is acceptable for all the different situations that the vehicle might encounter, including, for example, fire trucks by the side of the road with lights flashing that any human being would instantly recognize? Well, now, you know, a question <laughs> that if, if we were able to ask Tesla, well, does your regression testing include fire trucks by the side of the road with lights flashing. Well, why is this happening? Um, it'd be an interesting point for somebody, <laughs> somebody to ask them, I suppose. The response would probably be, I just bought Manchester United. <laughs> just kidding. Well, they could take the, the Microsoft approach. What's a fire truck and why are you, <laughs> why, why are you asking me to do that? Yeah. Now we're going to have it. So it only hit, our cars only hit Fred's. <laughs> oh my word. Um, Okay, so should we move on to a, a, a happier topic here? Um, Michael also sent around a graphic about the percentage change in estimated fatalities in first quarter of 2022 <laughs> from projected same quarter of 2021. Um, it looks like if you live in the Mid-Atlantic region, um, there's been a 52% increase in fatalities on the road. 
Um, whereas if you live in California, it's down 11% because everyone right. there is having Teslas. And right? that is, that's a comparison from 2021, the um, fatality numbers that, that, that NHTSA got last year to their estimates for the first, and which are based on um, reports, but their estimates for the first quarter of this year. So they're comparing quarter to quarter over the course of a year. And Yes, the Mid Atlantic um, had an just an, an I don't know what to call it a dismaying or you know it was statistically kind of a a wow shocking moment for me to see just how high the rate um, increased in in the Mid Atlantic region. I mean that's fifty percent more traffic deaths over um, a three month period from one year to the next is something that I'd never seen. Um, and you know the northeast didn't fare too much better i believe they were around uh 25 rate increase but the weird thing is if you look around a lot of the rest of the country there's not much of an increase so it appears a lot of the bad behaviors that are behind um this crash epidemic it's really a fatality epidemic because the number of crashes and injuries has tended to go down um they're they're saying you know that reckless bad driving behaviors and um incapacitated drivers and that type of thing are driving this trend so it looks like they live in and amongst those of us who are in the northern virginia area and really from north carolina up through delaware is a real problem zone right along i-95 um that's the only commonality i see in those states other than beaches um but I, I haven't been able to figure out, you know, what's driving that in this particular area of the country because it's it's an outrageously large increase over the course of a year. Well, I've read that a lot of people are moving out of California because of the high cost. Maybe maybe the kind of people moving out of California are moving east and, you know, causing these problems, bringing the problems with them. I don't know. That's a joke. That's supposed to be funny. But, you know... <laughs> I think I think we have to acknowledge. That. Thank you, forced humor. I like that. Uh, I think we also have to acknowledge that there can be some statistical anomalies that can drive this. These are interim numbers; they're not final numbers. And so, if, for example, the numbers that are coming out of California this year were delayed for some reason compared to last year, maybe they just haven't made it into the database yet. Similarly, uh, it could be that numbers from the East Coast were delivered early to the statistics to the statistics office and somehow they're skewing the numbers so i it, it's a big concern of course if these numbers are real we'll we'll have to watch them and see if the final numbers reflect these same uh, you know really startling changes that we're seeing in the interim numbers yeah the only obvious thing that jumps out at me in looking at this because the the 52 percent increase covers opioid country I mean, it's West Virginia, Kentucky. Um, they, they were actually the low end of really? the the rise. Delaware was was by far the highest. I mean, they they had like a hundred and sixty something percent rise. Oh my! But that was just people falling off bicycles, right? No, that hardly yeah. ever happens. I don't know. I mean, that was a that it, was a real that, Michael gave. I want to say they went from about like I don't know what it was. It was it was a low number. I want to say in the teens to something around fifty. So that's a, that's a huge rise in fatalities in one year. Um, but you know Virginia was at seventy percent rise. Um, 
Maryland and North Carolina were around 50% or higher. So that's, you know, state to state. That's, those are, those are very significant increases. Amazing. Well, maybe some over the air updates will fix those numbers and they'll change those charts. No. Yeah. Maybe in, meh, no, that's not going to, that's not going to help. <laughs> All right. Have we, have we made a, a small dent scratching the surface on, on software safety issues in cars? Yeah, I mean, that's all you can do really is because, you know, it's, it is an ever burgeoning field. uh, And and it's, it's, you know, it's not doesn't look like it's going anywhere anytime soon. And we're dumping more code into cars and as EVs proliferate, which a lot of companies have decided to do over conventional vehicles that, you know, batteries and the electric systems there require even more code. Um, And you know, one thing that we didn't talk about, but that's kind of important here is, you know, I was reading that all this code and all these computers require, you know, you're adding a lot of weight. Manufacturers are really focused on how to um, redesign wiring and some of these systems to uh, reduce vehicle weight to meet some of the emissions and fuel economy targets that they have to meet as well, um, which are also behind a lot of these software changes. So there's just a lot going on in this area and it's it's going to continue. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, following that, Michael, one of the trends that we'll see in the future is reduction in the number of wires by using uh, higher and higher bandwidth intercommunications among these different components. You know, if, for example, if they go from copper to fiber optic communications, they'll save a lot of weight, but that also provides a, a lot more required sophistication for the ECUs and the communications uh you know, in between all of those units. So that's driving even more software, even more, you know, of the same issues that we've been talking about in an effort to reduce weight in the cars. I think I think it's also important to realize that one of the reasons for this push into software is because the mechanics in the cars have actually gotten pretty good. They don't they don't really fall apart anymore. They last a long time. As you said, on, on a good day, they don't fall apart, but you know they they tend to last a long time. Certainly, a lot longer than when we were kids, driving around in jalopies with holes in the floor pans and all the things we used to do. So, um, you know, there is some good news in the fact that there is so much complexity and so many issues associated with the software, which is that it's only because the cars have gotten so good mechanically that we can even concentrate on that. And I imagine moving forward, they've got to start reducing the number of ECUs. I mean, from having 100, 150 of these things, it makes more sense just from a, a an engineering point of view, I imagine, just to have, you know, one one or two master controllers that just send out signals instead of having 100 and plus individually coded, uh, you know, mini computers, essentially, that are done by a, a dozen different companies. It makes more sense just to have, you know, um, you know, one setup that's controlling individual parts. Well, uh, from an engineering perspective, I don't think you're going to see that. There is right now one central controller, or in some cases, two central controllers for the vehicles that send out all the signals. So all of these different ECUs are associated with individual components, brakes, lights, horn, you know, who knows what, uh, airbags, that each 
problem. Each does a significant function on its own, but each is connected and under the control of the main computer. Uh, that's not going to change too much because the companies typically buy things as a unit. They buy the brakes with the ECU attached to it. They'll buy the airbag controller with the ECU attached to it. Um, it disperses the software task, sends it out to a lot of other companies, reduces the burden on the developers at the OEM, uh, because they don't have to develop code anymore. What they have to do is develop the interface standards that allow all the computers to talk to each other uh, without crashing into you know, into various signals or communication problems. So I, I do not think you're going to see fewer of these in the future. I think you'll see a lot more uh, as the industry matures. Uh, that just scares me because then you just have, you know, one bad apple at one of these companies that causes this kind of Christmas tree cascade effect as their component has malicious code in it or, an, or a back door or something like that. Well, that shows that you understand what's going on. So that's good. That's, you know, the, the, the way the cybersecurity people talk about that is that every extension increases the complexity of the, of the attack surface and allows more entry points for uh, bad actors to get into the system. Um, this is something people fight all the time, but it's important to know that the network controllers in all the cars right now called a, a CAN bus can't remember exactly what that stands for, is inherently insecure. Um, it was never designed to be a secure system. So anytime you can add something to the CAN bus, for example, just by sticking in a, a malicious module into the port that people use to read out the information in it, uh, you've got full access to all the components in the car and you can, you can do a lot of damage. So... That's something that should be addressed in the future. Uh, you know, successor to the CAN bus that has some security built into it, but they're not there yet. Okay. Uh, Takeaway from this week's episode, like all week's episodes, is be afraid. Be very afraid. There are no standards, and there's malicious modules out there, which sounds like the great greatest punk band name ever. I mean, Fred, congratulations again for coming up with great band names. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. One of my specialties. Great. Uh, if uh, unless uh, anyone else has anything else to say on this, I think we uh, definitely have to bring up a future uh, issue on security related issues and, and people hacking cars and turning them off remotely, um, which is, hey, another reason to be very afraid. Uh, no, don't be too afraid. Uh, I don't know. Just don't drive where I am. That'll be better. All right. Thanks, everybody. That's where you guys say thank you, listener. Thank, Thank you, you and uh, please go to autosafety.org and get all the latest information about the Center for Auto Safety. Oh, winner, Fred wins the award. Okay, go to autosafety.org, subscribe for Vehicle Safety Check, and maybe you can find out about over-the-air updates. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.